Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to have you as part of our community of listeners. My name is Andy McLenahan and this episode is going to focus on the cost of living crisis. Right now, households are being hammered by the highest rate of inflation in 40 years, a rate the Bank of England is predicting will rise above 11% in the autumn. This is placing immense pressure on millions of households across the country. And it's in this context that today's guest, social worker Dominic Waters, will discuss his living experience and his campaign to highlight and address the issue of food insecurity. Dominic, welcome. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? I'm good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thank you for joining me. It's a Monday morning. It's a nice way to start the week. Yeah, definitely. Now, Dominic, you, uh, sorry, before we actually go, where are you? You're in Kent, isn't that right? Yeah, I'm in Kent. I'm in, uh, well, London Road Estate. Okay. Now, you've written and spoken a lot about your living experience of poverty. And I know that you always like to distinguish between lived experience, which is a term which is used a lot in social work, and living experience. Can you tell me about your background and also about your current situation? Yeah, so um, I guess in terms of background, like I'm a single dad. Um, I have been for like raising my daughter by myself for I think like 15 years now. Um, we live in the most deprived council block of my um, estate um, and we survive off like universal credit, um, free school meal vouchers, child benefit. And we've always had like a pay-as-you-go gas and electric meter. And yeah, I guess just to like skip way forward is I've just completed, well, recently completed my social work um, studies and I'm now, yeah, just qualified. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. So I'm just in terms of making, uh, putting this into context for today's episode, um, research was just published just today by the Institute of Fiscal Studies, and it highlights that half of all children in lone parent families in the UK are now living in relative poverty. And that's double the rate among children living in two parent families. And it's, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be look, talking about um, the cost of the crisis, but also the pressures that are facing single families in particular. Dominic, you mentioned You've just uh, recently graduated. What led you to become a social worker? I think, I don't know. I think it was kind of written in a way, but um, it's it's been a kind of a journey of lots of... So, okay, so like being a single parent, especially when your child's like young and more um, like less independent, I've tried to, you know, um, get jobs or start start a career, but... It's kind of impossible as a lone parent, which I think speaks to um, the the statistics that you just or the findings that you just read about um, lone parents because we were disproportionately impacted by um, you know COVID. Now with the cost of living crisis, you know put people living in poverty. That is, it's like we've gone from one crisis to the next, and we're disproportionately impacted by both of them so 
And I'd also say that like people living in poverty have been in a cost of living crisis long before um, the phrase was like popularized. But um, yeah, so with social work, I I was trying to do, get a career and kind of trying to work out of poverty, but it it was just kind of impossible when my daughter was younger. Um, and then now her being in secondary school and more um, depend like less dependent on me. Sorry, I've I kind of thought, what can I do? Um, and it kind of felt like last chance saloon kind of thing. And also I wasn't eligible for any of the, um, like the student loans or anything. So it was kind of, and I had a bit of a background from a law degree and like an interest in family law and human rights and, um, and like, so, you know, tackling social injustices. And it kind of just led me to the only thing where I could get like a bursary or funding to complete was social work. So it wasn't as kind of like thought through as like maybe it should have been, but um, I think like it was like a good choice. Um, and what area of practice are you going into now? Um, I'm going into this week, I'll be going into a children in care team. Um, so like previously called looked after children or a lap team. Yes, so just starting off easy then, yeah. Yeah. Sorry for anyone. Who, this is, yes, this is a joke. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but incredibly important area of social work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's sorry to interrupt, but just to say, so during my studies, like my placements, what my first seventy day one was with um, a semi supported living scheme for high risk children in care. Um, so that was well, they're young people between. Uh, they were between 15, 16 and like 21. So I have a bit of a background in that. Now, Dominic, you mentioned that your route into social work was, uh, it was not a direct one. Um, it came about, perhaps you could say, by a happy accident. Um, in terms of your work as an anti-poverty campaigner, what led you into that? Uh, the values that led you into campaigning, my assumption would be that they were very much based in your own living experience. Yeah, Definitely. Um, I think it was kind of like probably a combination of things. And yeah, I think it's important to note that like even the term living, living experience is something that I developed, um, from, from the, you know, established, um, approach and way of thinking around lived experience. But I was getting asked to like write about, you know, my lived experience of poverty or my lived experience of um, council estates, or my lived experience of food insecurity. And I'd be grateful for the opportunities to write, but I'd also be thinking, no, this is like, I'm actually living this. So that's where it kind of developed from. And do you think, Dominic, sorry to interrupt, do you think um, there is a, just an assumption amongst uh, social workers, the, the profession more widely, management, that no social workers are in poverty and, and no social work students could be in poverty? I think that there is, there is, that's kind of, yeah, we get onto it, but that's where my kind of whole idea of um, social distance as in terms of the gaps between groups in society to do with poverty, culture, class and other factors, that's where it comes from. Because in my experience, leaders of um who you know senior policy makers and senior leaders in the social work field 
they enjoy like a comfortable distance from the daily realities of poverty. And yeah, and it just, I guess to answer your question in full, it was, it was, you know, still living in poverty, still as a single parent. And I was, I would, you know, I, I gravitated towards, you know, the language of the professional capabilities frameworks that were around, you know, approaches of anti-oppressiveness and um, anti-discrimination. And they kind of really resonated with me. And I, I kind of developed, it, it gave me a lot of um, momentum, I guess, in a way, because before I'd feel um, like the debilitating effects of poverty and the snobbery that you experience, it, you wouldn't really speak about these issues to anyone outside your council estate, you know, the use of food banks, um, free school meal provisions, the gas and electric being on emergency. And these, these, these unfortunately still are my daily realities. So I kind of, I, I felt like there needed to be a platform for someone with a voice um, like mine to kind of speak on these levels um, where it could kind of get a bit noticed. And that's why through um, a lot, a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of effort, I managed to um, put a book together. That was published in uh, 2021. Sure. Uh, you mentioned it already. Yeah. So the, the book is called Social Distance and Social Work. If you send me a link, I'll put that into the show notes so that listeners can access it. Now, it's a series of essays by social workers uh, and people with living experience examining the social and economic aspects of the COVID pandemic. In the introduction, uh, I was struck um, by your reference to the dehumanising nature of universal credit. And you highlight there that the system prevents basic human dialogue. Now, we can get focused on the, the financial aspects of uh, universal credit and how that impedes people and, and leads to, to, to problems in terms of poverty. But the dehumanising aspect of it, the fact that you're working against a bureaucracy. Um, tell us about that. What's it like to try to work with that system? It's, it's absolutely... It's, it's horrific, like, because you're trying to communicate about daily, like, necessities in terms of, like, a roof over your head or, or you know, even if it's changes in your circumstances or anything, and all you have is, like, a little box on, on a form to fill out, and you often just get kind of generic um, answers or they're not even... Or they've got... They, they just amplify that undeserving tone, Um I had to move, so I was on job seekers allowance, but to start studying social work, you can't study and um, receive JSA, job seekers allowance. So, um, but I could receive, so I had to move to universal credit at the start of studying social work. Um, and it's, I've just, the, the hurdles and, um, you know, really, obstacles that I've had to get over from universal credit. So I was on, just so people can hopefully understand a little bit, I was on job seekers allowance and housing benefit. But when you move to universal credit, that all comes under one. And so, but I was studying, I was six months in and I was at, and I was completely transparent about, you know, my bursary and everything. And I was actually working for the council on placement um, as COVID was coming in, and I was started getting letters um, seeking possession of mine and my daughter's flat, and saying that we had rent arrears of over six months, 
and it's because they hadn't apparently I they said I hadn't verified I was a student or something but at the time I'm receiving notices seeking of my seeking possession of my home from the same council that I'm working for and I'm trying to communicate this on this little dialogue box plus I'm dyslexic but you know when you're when it, when you're trying to communicate about you know such necessities and vital like day-to-day stuff I don't think um it's it's the right platform and it it there's no there yeah there's no human dialogue as you said so it's it's really like it is soul destroying at times you don't know if you're going to get a response and when you do it it like rarely ever amounts to any form of actual help or engagement Dominic, I'd be keen to explore that a bit more in terms of the destabilizing uh, effects. And how does it feel to be told that you're in rent arrears? How does it feel to to? Did you say that you were you were at risk of eviction at that stage? Yeah, I came back. I had a yellow notice seeking. It's a legal document notice seeking possession of your property. I don't know housing act da 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 nineteen whatever on my front door. And um, yeah, so me and my daughter were facing like really facing homelessness. And this is while I'm trying to study, trying to like arguably better our, myself and our situation. And ironically, I'm working for free for the same local authority that are implementing this action against us. And it just shows the failings, like the absolute failings of, on one level, just the failings of universal credit as a system. And secondly, just the ob- just that's just a little snapshot of just one obstacle that coming into social work or anywhere from a back, you know, a backdrop of po- real poverty, you know, the, the extra hurdles that you that you have to overcome and the, you know, the real stuff, the obstacles in your way. In relation to the scope of that problem, I mean, you, your example really brings home the the human impact. You know, looking at. Um, what it is like the the living experience. Joseph Rowntree Foundation and um, they published a report just last week. It was on the twenty ninth of June. Um, it's called "Not Heating, Eating, or Meeting Bills." So there's four point six million people in the UK are are in arrears with at least one bill, and the average amount owed is around sixteen hundred pounds. And for individuals that are on universal credit, that is being taken back, you know, from their payments. Um, so they're not getting all the support that they need. Um, so that is a, it's a huge, huge problem. Is that an issue that you think that social workers are f- fully aware of? I'd say no. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's enough awareness. That's kind of like all the work I do. Um, you know, even just little things on social media or any chance I'm given a platform is to highlight like the real impacts on already disadvantaged, already vulnerable families um, you know, the the impact that poverty and these broken systems are having. I was reading your book um, and there's a chapter in it by a guy called Phil Watson. I think Phil is a, is he a lecturer in Sunderland University, is that right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Okay, and he has a great quote. Um, it's from the social activist Dorothy Day. And the quote is, we must talk about poverty because people insulated by their own comfort lose sight of it. The question I was going to ask was, do you think many politicians understand the impacts of poverty? And that's one I, I do want to ask. But in relation to coming back to something you said at the very start, you said, you know, the cost of living crisis isn't anything new. You know, people that are in poverty, people who are low earners have been experiencing these impacts for many, many years. 
cost of living crisis, it's a way, I suppose, you could argue that it's it's just because that these impacts are starting to bite on middle earners and uh, middle class people that it's starting to become an issue. Um, but yeah, coming back to that question, do you think that many politicians understand the impacts of poverty? I don't think there's many politicians who've lived with the impacts of poverty. I think that is, is continually shown to us um, from the government voting against extending uh, free school meal provisions from, uh, I think it's MP Lee Anderson saying that you can make a meal on 30p a day. I'm on page you go gas and electric just to heat a chicken, like uh, cook a chicken from scratch or a chicken leg, you know, that's like 80p just on the oven. So, um, which then speaks to other issues of, you know, bad calories and unhealthy, less nutritious food and using the microwave and different issues that I could talk about for this whole episode. But I'd just say that in terms of there's just this continued um, underlying narrative of, you know, if you're poor, you're undeserving, um, that, you know, it goes through it goes through all my engagement with benefit systems, housing systems. And unfortunately, I think it comes into our prof- our profession as it does others. And I'd be, up until studying social work, I was literally like on many, many levels, I was silenced by snobbery. I wouldn't speak about these issues that I'm now openly discussing with you on a, on a kind of, you know, on a platform that can, public platform that can be accessed. Um, so I think that social work has got a it's got a lot a lot in place and a lot going for it and you know it's it's helped give someone like me or someone from a background like me that you know that momentum and confidence to be able to discuss these issues but I have to say it doesn't go far enough and that's why I'm campaigning for not to there just to be an acknowledgement of poverty in social works, code of ethics and um, professional guidance and standards, but, you know, a real demonstration of the understanding of the living reality of of going through poverty. And that, in one aspect, is about having food insecurity. One of my main objectives of my campaign is getting food insecurity um, included in the Social Work England Professional Standards Department for Education's uh, Knowledge and Skills statement, Statements and uh, BASWA's uh, Professional Capabilities Frameworks. Dominic, I mentioned, I asked you a few minutes back whether social workers are fully aware of the impacts of poverty. Um, in terms of, you, so you're just out of your training as a social worker. Did poverty, was poverty mentioned in your syllabuses um, when you were at university? Yeah, so it was mentioned and I think... Um, I think that the uni I went to, they were quite arguably forward thinking in terms of, you know, uh, of discussing and challenging these issues around poverty. But again, it didn't go far enough. Um, I still felt out of place in the classroom, like even though I might not have been, but, you know, the impact of poverty made you not feel perhaps so confident, especially at the start of my studies to like discuss these issues. and food was not mentioned once and as i've campaigned and developed ideas and redefined food insecurity as the living experience of food poverty in my book that there will be a link to um but yeah 
it's it wasn't mentioned and and that is you know that is one of the you know just to get by day to day having enough electric or gas to cook or enough food to you know feed your child and hopefully yourself that was that's been something that's been continuous through my my studies now moving on to your your training module on food insecurity that you've developed because of the need tell us a bit more about that you mentioned social work england you mentioned basra tell me what you're doing there Okay, so with the module, so I've created from all the all my experiences, both um, privately, like in, as a single dad living in council estate poverty, and my um, engagement with the profession. I've, um, as I said, I've re- redefined food insecurity, um, but acknowledging the UN's definition. But I've created a training module for both social workers and social work students. And the training is unique in that it's the first of its kind. Um, and also it engages with a voice of living experience. And it's designed by the person who's brought food insecurity directly into um, the domain of social care. And there's it tackles lots of lots of issues from you know the starting point of uh food being a blind spot in social work and all the way through to um, the food inequality framework that I presented um, last month at Baswa's first face-to-face annual conference. And I've developed that and really showing how it can enhance practice and, and raise awareness and understanding of what a lot of service users, sorry to use the phrase, are going through. Because that's what I noticed, the synergies, were even when I was on placement between what um, the people that we were there to serve, you know, none of the ones that I came across were in any sort of a well-off situation, quite the opposite. It really mirrored what I was going home to in terms of, you know, council estate poverty. And just to add to that, so when when, um, I was also on placement with children in care, I was seeing how food for them was they were surviving off trips to the food bank that I was um, I was facilitating as the social work student, and also deliveries from um, local supermarkets of like nearly gone off produce, and I saw how like their access to nutrition very much mirrored mine because on my council estate the shop it only stocks the lowest quality of produce, um, and so access to nutrition's always been a big issue because my council estate is a food desert. And so I saw how those, you know, that mirrored and those synergies between my experiences and the experiences of children in care. But something really struck me that their parents, uh, are the, you know, ultimately the government who are financially very secure, so they shouldn't be experiencing food insecurity. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm continuing to campaign on those fronts. And you make a distinction between food poverty and food insecurity. Can you uh, just explain that? What's the difference? Yeah, so at the start, um, well, I was doing the work before the amazing work of Marcus Rashford, um, but a lot was being discussed around food poverty. And food poverty I define as like the scarcity of food in your cupboard. But food insecurity is as i've as i've um discussed further it impacts on your well-being both emotionally and physically 
physically and your like ability to engage in society, engage with services. And doubly, I've argued so that I've connected it to why it should be um, a key focus for social care and social work. Yeah. So, I mean, food, it's very easy to think of food solely as nutrition. So good food, bad food. Yeah. Eating has much, much wider social and cultural implications. So if we break that down a bit, we're talking about social work. How does food poverty impact at a social level? Yeah, so I, f- I think the I'm, I've really tried and it's beginning, thankfully, to be discussed. But the, the implications are, are so widespread and... Um, there are many cultural aspects to it that I think we need to get we need to get into as well, especially for you know children in care who maybe you know have a culture of halal meat or di- or different aspects. And it's funny that I interviewed someone, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying, who was in care their whole life, and they're in London, and so you know since they were a couple of months old, and in their in their children's home, you know there'd be the old school big like silver pots and cooking food and there'd be a whole hierarchy of like how old you were, where you got to sit and everything. But I was I was contemplating how and reflecting on it, how even though he he said like he never experienced hunger. You know, there might have been days like Fish Friday, maybe he didn't like fish or he wanted a chocolate bar, but he said he never experienced hunger while he was in care. He did experience, you know, some other um, awful things. But I, and this is years ago, and I was thinking about was my, reflecting on my time in placement with children in care and how it hasn't progressed. It hasn't got better because those kids are relying on um, nearly gone off food. And, um, and then the treat of the week is a delivery from Greg's Bakery that was, um, you know, those kind of ready-to-eat um, snacks, which was also being used as a, a like a behaviour controlling mechanism. And if you hadn't obeyed the rules of the scheme, then, you know, you weren't allowed the Greg's access to the Greg's that week. So I really, it really just struck me, like, how much, and I'll repeat it, that it is a blind spot in social work and a lot more needs to be done to address um, this inequality. Dominic, just to set some context in terms of the scale of the problem, figures from the charity The Food Foundation, um, these were published back in February this year, they show a continued rise in food insecurity across the UK. So compared with July 2021, the figure has risen from 7.3% of UK households to 8.8% of UK households who have reported that they or someone in their household have had to go a whole day without eating in the past month because they couldn't afford access uh, to food. Now that is shocking. Um, much more recently, right up to date, um, Joseph Rowntree Foundation, I mentioned their report just a few minutes ago, the report Not Heating, Eating or Meeting Bills. Um, it was published on the 29th of June and it presents research findings that indicate that some 7 million low-income households were going without at least one essential. So that's either a warm home, enough food or appropriate clothing or basic to- toiletries. And over 2 million families were were neither eating properly nor heating their home adequately. Um you know, we are the fifth uh, biggest economy in the world, the United Kingdom. Those figures are just absolutely shocking. Definitely. You are, you know, you, you've spoken about your living experience. Have you noticed just even in the recent months, things getting worse? I have. Um, and 
I've noticed even around the the twenty pound decrease to universal credit, like there was a sense of worry with my neighbours. Like there's, I live in a deprived council estate block, but there's four of them, and you know I interact often with my neighbours, and a lot of them aren't as mobile. Um, so their, you know, their access to a supermarket is, um, is, is a real challenge. And yeah, in terms of financially. I think it's vital the work the Food Foundation are doing and um, to put it out there, I'm working very closely with them now and um, they've just endorsed my um, food insecurity training module and the executive director has written a piece for my second book, which will be uh, coming shortly, the um, COVID capsule two, the second edition. Um, And yeah, so the Food Foundation, they did uh, the work with Marcus Rashford and their findings were vital in that. And also, as you kind of point to, the recent findings are that I think it's nearly half of all people on universal credit have experienced food insecurity in the last six months. And that just isn't good enough. And then when, and just to make the link, which is what hasn't been done before and what the work I'm doing in my campaign, Food is Care, um, highlights in no uncertain terms, is that if you look at the findings that, you know, you're 10 times more likely if, you, if you're if you in a deprived area to have social workers involved in your in the raising of your children, and that's um, Professor Paul Bywaters and the Child Welfare Inequalities Project. Um, so you're 10 times more likely if you're living in poverty to have that um, use of a social worker or social workers involved that also speaks to why this needs to be on the agenda of social work when, as as the Food Foundation have highlighted, um, yeah, half of people on universal credit are experiencing food insecurity in the last six months. So I don't think it can be before when I first started arguing these points, there were murmurs about, no, this is an issue for public health or this isn't in the social work remit, or um, which I think derives from a snobbery and an undeserving um, ideology, but I don't think it can be argued anymore. And, um, you know, as unfortunate and now visible it is, it really needs to be addressed. Thank you, Dominic. Now, you talked earlier on about the marginalisation, the results from poverty, how poverty sets you apart. In terms of impacts on mental health, the stress associated with that, can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, as... Food insecurity impacts on both your physical and emotional well-being. And in terms of mental health, when, you know, when you're struggling to keep a roof over your child's head, to feed them, you know, to keep the place warm, it, you know, it can impact on your confidence. Um, and, you know, at times you can feel like you're failing, which, you know, it has such a broad impact on your, on your general well-being and, ability to kind of continuously combat against these systems that seem designed to like keep you where you are or make it even worse. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been really hard at times. And I really feel for, you know, the families out there that are experiencing what I am and maybe, or, you know, maybe struggle with mental health issues more or, um, physical mobility issues because the odds are really stacked against you, especially with these systems that just leave you 
you know, not knowing which way to turn. And what about child development? You know, if a little one's not getting the nutrition they need, there are serious impacts there. Yeah, there's lots of work around that. And in fact, I can give you an exclusive, um, Andy, for your Please podcast. Please do. Yeah, this is an exclusive, is the Food Foundation that we were just talking about. And it's, and yeah, I'll tell you the whole story then. Um, they So I did my dissertation just before Christmas on um, understanding the place of food insecurity in social work, a literature review, first of its kind, I will say. And one of the five key papers I focused on was the Broken Plate Report 2021 by the Food Foundation. They've just done their 2022 Broken Plate Report. I don't think it's published yet, but um, I'm involved in um, that report. So that will be coming in the coming weeks and there's there's a whole there's a whole um metric on the impact of child development and i'd really suggest that's very up to date so i'd really suggest that you know we revisit it or everyone who listens looks out for that absolutely please do now staying with the issue of um child development uh, and food poverty Free school meals. You mentioned Marcus Rashford earlier on. I actually don't know the answer to this. Uh, what's the situation with free school meals this summer in England? I'm not, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure, but I can speak about the holiday that's just gone. And I got, um, it was the Easter holiday, and I got a £30, because of the amazing work of Marcus Rashford, for my daughter, I got a £30 free school meal voucher, which equates to £3 a day. Now, the issue here is, and is another key point of the Food is Care campaign, is what you could get your child for £3 a day prior to COVID is a lot less than what you can get your child now for £3 a day. So the amount need the government needs to look at that ASAP. Um, and in terms of the 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 up and the sorry, the forthcoming summer holidays, I remember it being like you know, it, it's a time where you know the weather's good. You know, you you try and enjoy yourself, but there's the realities of you know being a disadvantaged family in council estate poverty or just general poverty is you're thinking that you can't do um, the holidays that other families are doing. You're probably not able to leave the country with your ch- child or children, and the cost of school um, uniform is is massive and weighs on you the whole of the holidays till, you know, till August when you try and purchase it all because, you know, you're not going to want your child to go without. And these are these are real concerns. And I really hope that the government, um, you know, make targeted um, support for some of the most vulnerable families out there. In terms of social work with families um, who are in poverty, there's only so much a social worker can do with a family when an entire socioeconomic system is stacked against them. So I was struck by a quote um, from your book. This is Lewis Roberts, um, former vice chair of Basel UK. Um, Lewis states, we should be cautious about championing approaches such as relationship-based practice without framing them in the context of the populations and services in which practitioners work. A relational approach does not take a family out of poverty or provide the funding for community services. We must be honest about the limitations of social work practice and have the courage to campaign for a more equal society. Now, you're flagging up the challenges and that's your role as a campaigner. I'm not suggesting it's your role to come up with the solutions. That's the government's role. But if we were to look at um, you know, what could be done um, to address this situation, 
food poverty is an issue, is, a, is a difficult one because you know what what are we looking at? It's difficult to subsidise food. Is it a suggestion of improving the system of social security? I think that one shout out to Lewis Roberts. He was um, he was instrumental in helping me uh, reach out to people who contributed to my book. So massive shouts to Lewis. Um, and yeah, great quote, great um, contribution to the book. And it, what he's saying, it really raises, you know, that these other approaches without an awareness of the daily reality of poverty are, you know, limited. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, I think for social workers in my, you know, limited experience, but there's a lot of um, emphasis on, you know, knowledge of local community resources, be also including food banks, which are generally chari- charitable organisations, and, you know, leading your your clients in these directions, which isn't a food package from a food bank, isn't a solution. You know, it's a plaster that can maybe um, help a family get by for a day, maybe even a week, but it's it's... It's just a plaster over over a broken system that has been neglecting and making people in poverty feel shame for a system that is failing them. So social work, with its values and ethics, needs to um, be alive to these issues. And I will just add that I've been in meetings very recently with, I won't mention any names, with leading social workers and at times when discussing the cost of living crisis, I've been told, you know, you shouldn't, I, I get quite passionate in my responses and I'm welcome to reflect on this, but, you know, I've been told that I shouldn't take it so personal. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty stupid thing to say to someone who has a living experience of poverty. Uh, thank you. So exactly. So when you're going through daily, these inequalities, it's hard not to take it personally. So I think that this shift in that, in a, I hadn't fully taken on, but that Lewis is pointing to as well there, and all the work I do in more depth and detail is is pointing to that there needs to be that awareness, understanding, and alive to uh, the impacts of poverty. This is a different. I mean, if I'm going to try to be sympathetic to the individual who said that to you about not taking it sure. personally, my role with Baswa, I work in Northern Ireland and I work as a um, political, uh, sorry, public affairs, um, essentially as a lobbyist, working with politicians, working with uh, senior civil servants, and you will hear the argument frequently about you can't make policy based on anecdotes, and I know that you make make policy based on uh, numbers in terms of the number of people that are impacted. Nonetheless, the stories that you share, the personal stories that you share, they 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 highlight the need. You know, figures on a page, I quoted figures from the JRF earlier, I, I quoted figures also from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. They're really helpful in starting out the big picture, but they don't tell you anything about the living, lived experience going on every day. So, yeah, in terms of someone saying, don't make it personal, perhaps they feel that it's... it's um, that's a harder way to, to influence policy. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. We need to have both. We need to have both sides. Of, I mean, it's not two sides of an argument. You need to have the big macro level um, picture, but you also need to have the, the lived experience as well. And just to reflect on that, Andy, is, and yeah, great points. And it's, I don't, it's not, you know, it's emotionally draining to share, share this in, in a society that, you know, still on many levels, views poverty as something shameful, um, undesirable, and, 
you know, something that there's a snobbery around. And, you know, I don't want to share, you know, the personal hardships that I go through, but I do it because I feel that it is a blind spot, that it's okay that there's, um, you know, uh, points and ethics and values to say, oh, yeah, be aware of the disadvantages and hardships people go through. But then I've tried to use my voice to kind of really bring it home and say that not enough is being done about this. There isn't enough awareness. And it is about the macro. You know, I'm when I speak about the systems, I'm not, I'm trying to speak up for, you know, families that are going without. And so it's, it is about the macro and it is hopefully like the food is care campaign. One of our biggest um, objectives, and I'm working with the food foundation, hopefully to achieve this is have um, in law. And this is a bit of an exclusive is have law in terms of the children act and the care act that um, have, you know, a focus on welfare and well-being, have that in the definition of the legal definition of well-being, that food insecurity is included and and also included in our professional guidance standards and uh, frameworks, because then it will make that, it won't just be me saying it, um, local authorities and social workers and broader um, services will be have a duty um, to have an understanding of what people like me go through daily and that's fantastic and the, the last question i was going to ask you dominic was if you were elevated to a role in government what would your first decision be so i'm going to take that but i mean that would be incredibly helpful the difficulty is that can't be done without additional resources so resources need to follow that as well it can't just be left to the department for education to address this as an issue it has to be you know funded very much so and i have sent i did a survey which is which i, I think in a way the findings are shocking but I found it, um, it gave me hope in that my survey was the first of its kind in terms of um, focusing on food insecurity, but that um, clients of social workers are experiencing. But it was social workers speaking up for the hardships their clients are going through. And it was, it's the Food is Care survey, it's been published. Hopefully you can, you know, Google it and it will come up. But there very much needs to, it highlights that there needs to be um, more done in terms of policy and that I think it was 82% of social workers said that there there's a real lack of training and understanding around food insecurity experienced by um, many uh, service users. So that, so we've kind of, the work I've done, I've kind of highlighted a problem that I already knew existed from my personal experience, but for, on a wider scale, and then providing the training, which um, you can I'll put out there, you can book. I'm, I've already been booked now um, for a couple of dates in September and one in August by local authorities. So if you're interested in the first of its kind food insecurity training, do get in touch. And how do they do that, Dominic? So, oh yeah, on Twitter, I should probably say, um, I go by Single Dad SW, uh, Single Dad Social Work. I've got a little bit of a following I try and put up uh, stuff, keep people up to date with um, the stuff I'm doing on there. So please do follow me. I get a lot of um, quite senior people from in in the profession DM me. Um, I had two regarding the training, and I'm going to put out a tweet um, this week or next week with a graphic regarding the training. But also, you can get to me via email. I'll put it out there. 
as this is a, um, a Basra platform, is note2dominic at gmail.com. And it's two as in T-O, not the number. And yeah, you can get to me there. But yeah, really, Twitter's like, and just to say, yeah, Twitter's been amazing because when I was first starting and I felt like out of place in classrooms and stuff, it was through a bit of engagement on Twitter. People seemed to like some of the stuff I was saying, it seemed to start to resonate with people. And then um, it was the chair of Basra, Jerry and um, Emma, who reached out to me and got me to speak. Um, I think there was a gap. And so they, there was like a number, they needed an extra person to speak at Basra's 50th festival. And I spoke there on a panel with Jerry and um, it was led by David Brindle, a social policy editor previously of The Guardian. And it's crazy to say and bring it full circle is David Brindle has just um, endorsed all my work and the food insecurity module that I just said. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And of course, Jerry is our former chair. Um, yeah. She uh, was replaced by Julia Ross at the, at the recent AGM. Dominic, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for taking the time out. I know you're very busy. Um, it's been a really good experience. Um, I hope that the listeners have learned as much as I have. Thanks for, for taking the time. Thanks, Pete.